0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for
1: joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Veseliga, and I am the director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientists section here at ASHP, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me are Danielle McPherson, PGY2 cardiology pharmacy resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and PGY1 pharmacy resident Riley Wildeman. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started talking about today what I feel is like a classic debate, rate versus rhythm when it comes to atrial fibrillation. So let's kick this off by providing a little bit of background on rate and rhythm control and why we use each strategy.
2: Sure. So I can start out and talk about rate control. So the rate control strategy has really been the standard of care in most patients with atrial fibrillation since the landmark Affirm trial was published almost 20 years ago. Affirm included over 4,000 patients, and patients were followed for an average of three and a half years. The Affirm trial really compared rate control, which utilized data blockers, our non DHP calcium channel blockers, and digoxin to a rhythm control strategy. Uh, in the rhythm control strategy, the provider could choose cardioversion or antiarrhythmic medication such as amiodarone, flecainide, procainamide, sotalol, or propafenone. The primary endpoint in the AFFIRM trial was overall mortality, and although it wasn't statistically significant, there was a trend towards increased mortality in that rhythm control group. The other integral finding of the AFFIRM trial was the increased number of adverse effects in the rhythm control group. And this isn't just your everyday adverse effects or adverse effects in general. It's adverse effects like torsades or other arrhythmias. So because of all these things, rate control is currently the preferred strategy in the AHA guidelines for the management of atrial fibrillation. And with this strategy, we're not really concerned if the patient is in normal sinus rhythm or if they're in atrial fibrillation. The goal is merely to keep the patient's heart rate controlled while at rest and during exertion to prevent those tachycardia-induced complications like heart failure. So with that being said, I will let Danielle tell you about rhythm control. You know, that strategy with increased rates of death and arrhythmias.
0: Riley, that's great and all, but I do think the rationale for rhythm control therapy definitely trumps that of rate control. I mean, why would we keep someone in atrial fibrillation if we can convert them to normal sinus rhythm? Listen to yourself. The reasoning behind rhythm control therapy is really much more simple. We want to convert someone to normal sinus rhythm, which will, in turn, decrease complications such as stroke, heart failure, myocardial infarction, and overall mortality. Although the risk of stroke is dependent on other coexisting risk factors, it is increased five-fold in those with atrial fibrillation. Additionally, in the Framingham Heart Study, 15% of deaths occurred within 30 days of atrial fibrillation diagnosis in a cohort study of over 600 patients. Therefore, the earlier we can restore a patient to normal sinus rhythm and avoid these adverse outcomes, the better. Although rhythm control therapy has been put on the back burner due to literature that associates its use with increased adverse effects and hospitalizations, it is particularly beneficial in specific patient populations. And might I add that this literature was published over a decade ago. More recently, we have realized a one-size-fits-all approach to rate control therapy isn't necessarily the best option. Rhythm control therapy has the potential to improve patients' symptoms, their quality of life, and to really preserve the function of the heart.
1: It seems like this debate between rate and rhythm control has been resurrected due to the publication of the EAST-AFNET-4 trial. Danielle, can you provide some background about this trial? And then Riley, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are.
0: Yes, of course. The Early Treatment of Atrial Fibrillation for Stroke Prevention, or EAST-AFNET-4 trial, was an international study that included 2,800 patients completed at 135 sites in 11 different European countries. The goal of this trial was to answer the clinical question of does early rhythm control or rate control therapy reduce the risk of cardiovascular complications in patients with atrial fibrillation? The trial design randomly allocated patients in a one-to-one ratio to receive either early rhythm control or usual care. Those included were patients with recent onset atrial fibrillation, and specifically those diagnosed within one year prior to enrollment, and either greater than 75 years of age with a prior stroke or transient ischemic attack, or greater than 65 years old with risk factors for adverse cardiovascular outcomes. The strategies for the rhythm control group were chosen by local study teams independently. These strategies included antiarrhythmic drugs, as well as catheter ablation and cardioversion. Unlike previous trials, catheter ablation, which does continue to grow in popularity, was included as a means of rhythm control therapy. In contrast to the rhythm control group, those receiving usual care were treated with rate control therapy without rhythm control agents. Medications for rate control included beta blockers, digoxin, as well as calcium channel blockers. In terms of patient monitoring, they were to complete twice-weekly ECGs, and additional ECGs were ordered if patients were particularly symptomatic. The first primary outcome was the time-to-first occurrence of a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, stroke, or hospitalization with worsening of heart failure or acute coronary syndrome. The second primary outcome was the number of nights spent in the hospital per year. The trial was actually stopped early after a median duration of 5.1 years due to efficacy seen specifically in the rhythm control group. In terms of the primary outcome, there were fewer events in the rhythm control group. And to really quantify this, there was specifically a 22% relative risk reduction in terms of the composite outcome of cardiovascular death, stroke, and hospitalization. There was no overall difference in nights spent in the hospital, although it was slightly lower in the rhythm control group at 5.8 versus 5.1 days. And all-course cause mortality was also similar between groups at 9.9 versus 11.8%. And of note, the rate of adverse reactions was not statistically significant, although it was slightly higher in the rhythm control group at 4.9 versus 1.9% in the usual care group. And I really want to make note of this point because this is a large decrease in adverse events versus previously published literature, which is really, really important for a rhythm control strategy.
2: Okay, Daniel, I just really have to stop you there. You, you didn't tell our listeners about what kinds of adverse effects were more common in that rhythm control group. You know, the adverse effects like AV block and torsades, bradycardia, and the need for cardiac devices like pacemakers or defibrillators, not to mention some of those adverse side effects associated with catheter ablation, like pericardial tamponade and other bleeding events. Those seem like some pretty scary side effects to me, even if the numbers are small. So that's a big strike for rhythm control in my book.
0: All right, Riley, let's not get carried away here. We know that the ultimate goal is to restore normal sinus rhythm to preserve the function and structure of the heart. Well, normal sinus rhythm occurred more frequently in those who had been randomly assigned to receive early rhythm control rather than those assigned to usual care. After one year, 84.9% in the rhythm control group maintained normal sinus rhythm, which decreased slightly to 82.1% at two years. In those that were assigned to the usual care group, only 65.5% were in normal sinus rhythm at one year, which decreased further to 60.5% at two years. So although not perfect, antiarrhythmic therapy, catheter ablation, and or cardioversion was more effective in maintaining patients in normal sinus rhythm, which we really do know is always the
2: goal. Thanks, Danielle. That was a great overview of the ESTAFNET 4 trial, but you really left out all of the important limitations of this trial. So the first limitation that I want to talk about is that use of a composite endpoint. So our previous trials in this debate between rate and rhythm control have used overall mortality as their primary endpoint. I think composite endpoints are just more difficult to interpret. The East Avnet 4 trial does break down that composite endpoint, and the death from cardiovascular causes piece remains significantly less in the early rhythm control group, but the study was designed and powered for that composite outcome rather than just mortality alone. The study was also open-labeled and not powered for safety outcomes, which could lead to significant bias in the area of safety. So what does the EAST-AFNET trial really tell us? Um, next, the agents used for rhythm control were different from other trials. This trial allowed the use of ablation as part of that rhythm control group, as Danielle had mentioned previously. In the EAST-AFNET-4 trial, approximately 20% of those patients in the rhythm control group underwent ablation. The significant difference in this trial compared to other trials like the Affirm trial may be due to that use of ablation rather than the anti agents used. There was a recent meta-analysis that was published about the use of ablation in atrial fibrillation, and it found ablation to be highly beneficial in terms of mortality, cardiovascular hospitalizations, and recurrence of atrial fibrillation. So it raises the important question of, was that mortality benefit seen in the East AFNET trial due to ablation? Another important aspect is the medications used for rhythm control. So the most common agents used in the East AFNET-4 trial were flecainide, amiodarone, and dronedarone. One of the common agents we use here in the United States is dofetilide, but the use is limited in this study because the trial was mostly completed in Europe where dofetilide is not approved for use. Dofetilide is one of the common agents we use here in the U.S. because it is one of only two agents, one of only two antiarrhythmic agents that appear to be safe in patients with heart failure. Also, about 76% of the patients that were in the rhythm control group were also taking beta blockers. Therefore, they may be reaping some benefits from that rate control as well. So I don't really think you can claim that rhythm control is better based on this trial.
0: All right, Riley, I can't let you continue without making one big point about antiarrhythmic therapy used in previous literature versus in the East Afnet 4 trial. I do agree that catheter ablation was used much more frequently in this trial, but I do not believe it's a negative thing, given that this strategy has grown so much in popularity over the recent years. Additionally, we have to remember that the trials that favor the use of rate over rhythm control were published over a decade ago. Our anti-rhythmic therapies have come very far since the publication of this data. More specifically, Sotalol was one of the main therapies used in the AFFIRM trial, with 41.4% of patients in the rhythm control group using the medication at any point in the trial. It was the second most widely used medication, with amiodarone being the most frequently utilized. In contrast, a much lower percentage of patients received Sotolol therapy in the East AfNet-4 trial. Although the exact number was not quantified, Sotolol therapy fell in the other antiarrhythmic therapy category, which made up 4.6% of the total patient population, This really does exemplify how far we have come in terms of utilizing anti-rhythmic agents with better adverse effect profiles. I think this is a very strong argument in favor of bringing rhythm control therapy back to the front line, and definitely something we all need to keep in mind.
2: All right, Danielle. Well, I want to get back to some of those limitations of the East AfNet-4 trial. Um, So I wanted to point out that although it's not specifically explained in the publication, at two years after randomization, 35% of those patients who were in the rhythm control group were no longer receiving rhythm control therapy. So this likely shows us that those patients on rhythm control were either transitioned to a rate control strategy, or they were ablated and no longer needed anti-rhythmic therapy. So this is yet more evidence that rhythm control altogether isn't that great, but maybe catheter ablation alone is the key to rhythm control. Or we could just stick with the tried and true rate control strategy that we know is effective and safe. So finally, one of the common arguments for the use of rhythm control is to control atrial fibrillation symptoms, especially if symptoms are persistent despite being on rate control. Interestingly, the rates of asymptomatic patients were similar between the rate control group as 73% and rhythm control group as 74%. So as you can see, this east Afnet 4 trial is interesting, but considering the limitations, I don't think it's very convincing evidence.
1: So it seems like we have a fiery debate going on. How does the publication of the EAST-AFNET-4 trial change clinical practice?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, At this time, I don't think the EAST-AFNET-4 trial changes clinical practice that much. In specific patients who are recently diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, rhythm control may be an option, but I think the evidence of increased adverse effects with the rhythm control agents cannot be forgotten. And I mean, come on, Danielle, how many patients do we really see that are within 36 days of atrial fibrillation onset, like the median in the EAST-AFNET-4 trial? I also think if a rhythm control strategy is chosen, catheter ablation should be highly considered over antiarrhythmic medications. Trials such as the Castle af and you could even argue the EAST-AFNET-4 trial, have shown the great benefit of catheter ablation. But ablation is invasive, and it's really technically difficult to do. So in my practice, I will continue to recommend rate control in most patients with atrial fibrillation, but I look forward to additional literature to really fuel this debate. So with that being said, I'm interested to hear Danielle's thoughts, but it's obvious that rate control is the correct answer here.
0: I think for me, this is a pretty easy question. Rhythm-controlled therapy should definitely be brought back to the front line of atrial fibrillation management. As we touched on earlier, rhythm-controlled therapy initiated soon after the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation in East Apnet-4 were shown to reduce the composite outcomes of cardiovascular complications without posing any significant safety concerns in terms of adverse effects and increased hospital duration of stay. To really put this in perspective, atrial fibrillation has been shown to be an independent predictor of mortality with an odds ratio of 1.5 in men and 1.9 in women. I really do think that in this sense, we should be more aggressive in our patients who are presenting with their first occurrence of atrial fibrillation or have been diagnosed within the past year. If we can restore these patients to normal sinus rhythm, we can concurrently decrease the risk of heart failure, stroke, and mortality, which will be providing a great service to our patients. In terms of changing clinical practice, I think we should be more cognizant of those presenting early on in their diagnosis. If we can use rhythm control strategies, including cardioversion or ablation, and be effective in maintaining these patients in normal sinus rhythm, we can really change their outcomes. And Riley, I think you need to rethink your point that the East AFNET-4 being powered to a composite outcome rather than mortality alone is problematic. Cardiovascular death, stroke, and hospitalization are all very important endpoints in terms of atrial fibrillation management. Although not powered for statistical significance, each component of the primary outcome was numerically lower in the rhythm control arm, which means that a reduction in mortality was seen. Interestingly, a post hoc analysis of the firm trial actually found that survival benefit may be seen in patients in which sinus rhythm was maintained. So your arguments are not perfect either. And besides, Afnet e- 4 successfully concluded that we can use rhythm control therapy early in atrial fibrillation management to specifically reduce the occurrence of cardiovascular death, stroke, and hospitalization. So Riley, shouldn't that be enough for you? <laughs> Um, So are there specific patient populations that we should use rate or rhythm control for? Yeah, so I think we should definitely look out for those who met the inclusion criteria of East AfNet-4, as we know that in comparison to our previous literature, these are really the patients who saw benefit with our rhythm control strategy. Looking at previous literature, no patients were included on initial presentation of atrial fibrillation in the race trial, and only one third of patients included in the affirm trial were presenting with an initial episode of atrial fibrillation. In contrast, like Riley nicely pointed out, in the East AFNET 4 trial, the median days since atrial fibrillation diagnosis was only 36. That being said, there's one thing we really do know, and that's that timing does matter. Based on the inclusion criteria of east Afnet 4 we should be looking out for patients with early onset atrial fibrillation, so specifically those diagnosed within one year. Additional patients that may seek greater benefit are those older than 75 years of age with a history of transient ischemic attack or stroke, or those who met two of the very specific following criteria. So they were greater than 65 years of age, female, had a past medical history significant for heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, severe coronary artery disease, stage 3 or 4 chronic kidney disease, or left ventricular hypertrophy. And if you kind of sit back and think about these patient characteristics, we know that these are all risk factors included in our CHADS2 VASC score that we use to evaluate one-stroke risk specifically for our atrial fibrillation patients. So based on this, those with early atrial fibrillation and a higher risk of thromboembolic events should be evaluated for rhythm control therapy prior to our rate control. Sure. I think it's also important to note that the patients randomized to early rhythm control therapy experienced statistically significant fewer strokes at 40 versus 62 patients in the usual care group with a p-value of 0.03. And lastly, about 29% of those included in East aphnet 4 had underlying heart failure. And this was a greater percentage than those included in the AFFIRM trial, which was about 23%. In fact, those with heart failure at baseline in the AFFIRM trial, a mortality trend actually favored the rhythm control arm. And this is very important to note as heart failure can promote the development of atrial fibrillation through our structural and neurohormonal processes. And atrial fibrillation can also in turn lead to heart failure through tachycardia-mediated processes and other physiologic effects. So together, our heart failure and atrial fibrillation really represent this double-edged sword. They increase the risk of stroke, heart failure, hospitalizations, and all-cause mortality. And interestingly enough, patients with heart failure are at greatest risk for those adverse effects soon after the clinical onset of atrial fibrillation. So really, if we can maintain these patients in normal sinus rhythm and thus preserve the function of the heart, we really are providing a great deal of clinical benefit to this fragile patient population.
2: In terms of rate control, the answer is much simpler. The vast majority of patients with atrial fibrillation may benefit from rate control with limited safety concerns. I think it is reasonable to trial patients on rate control as a first-line option and progress to rhythm control if they fail rate control due to uncontrolled symptoms, or if they have a rate that is just difficult to control. Overall, I agree with Danielle. I think if we are going to consider rhythm control as first-line therapy, and that's a big if, it should be in the very specific patient population that was included in the EAST-AFNET-4 trial. And maybe that the ideal strategy within the rhythm control should be ablation. I find it interesting that Danielle brought up heart failure patients. I would actually argue that the heart failure patients should be initiated on rate control rather than rhythm control. I agree that atrial fibrillation and heart failure can precipitate each other and lead to a vicious cycle, but that is only if they're not well controlled. Utilizing a beta blocker provides mortality benefit from the heart failure perspective and likely a mortality benefit from the atrial fibrillation perspective as well. Mechanistically, a beta blocker will prevent the neurohormonal modification that may precipitate atrial fibrillation and will maintain a lower heart rate, preventing the tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. Because our heart failure patients can only get amiodarone or dofetilide, and if we remember, dofetilide was minimally used in the EAST-AFNET-4 trial, I would be hesitant to start a rhythm control strategy in these patients prior to at least attempting rate control first.
1: So as we wrap up here, uh, what are the take-home points for rate control and what are the take-home points for rhythm control?
2: Sure. So one key takeaway point for rate control therapy is that it is the more versatile option. It can be utilized for the majority of patients with atrial fibrillation. The medications used for rate control are relatively benign, especially compared to the rhythm control agents. Based on the literature prior to the EAST-AFNET-4 trial, rate control resulted in fewer adverse effects, fewer hospitalizations, and a trend towards less mortality as well. As for the EAST-AFNET-4 trial, it's not very convincing evidence for rhythm control. I think in the coming years, we'll continue to see literature comparing rate and rhythm control and may find specific subgroups where each strategy is best, but at this time, I would still favor a rate control therapy for most patients.
0: So on the other side, some key takeaway points for rhythm control therapy is to note that this strategy holds much more value in particular patient populations. Specifically, we want to target restoration of normal sinus rhythm and patients similar to those included in the EAST-AFNET-4 trial. Additionally, heart failure patients and those with coronary artery disease are particularly interesting patient populations for further discussion in future trials. Utilization of only rate control therapy only puts patients at an increased risk for unfavorable changes to the heart that are harmful to their disease progression and cause structural changes. Lastly, we know that if we can restore and maintain normal sinus rhythm without added adverse effects and increase patients' quality of life, this is really the ultimate goal. Although we need more literature to support which rhythm control agents are most effective, I really do think that East AfNet-4 really puts rhythm control therapy back on the table.
1: Well, Riley and Danielle, thank you so much for joining us for our episode today. I want to thank you for your time and the research. You guys did a great job. And I think our listeners are going to be uh, really, really considering rate versus rhythm. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ACHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more on our ACHP website. Other offerings I encourage you to check out would also be those on credentialing and privileging and the preceptor toolkit. And don't forget to check out forums, such as the ACHP Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Connect Community Forum. Thanks again for tuning in and join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with ASHP content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. I'm Vicki Basiliga and thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, Be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.